0: The song, You Can Get Anything You Want at Alice's Restaurant, composed by Oliver Guthrie and released in 1967 is not a song about Alice or her restaurant. It is a song that exposed the hypocrisy of the U.S. government's position as it related to the Vietnam War. The song is 18 minutes long, and we don't have time to play an 18-minute song on a 59-minute program, so we'll give you the gist of the story. In 1965, the U.S. government required all 18-year-old men to report to their draft board, take a physical and a psychological exam to determine eligibility. When a psychologist asked Arlo Guthrie why he wanted to go to Vietnam, Guthrie emphatically announced he wanted to kill. The psychologist did not grasp the facetious nature of Guthrie's answer and declared him fit to serve in the military. However, when asked if he had ever been arrested, Guthrie admitted that he had been arrested for littering. The military declared him morally unfit to serve, killing good, littering, immoral. We here at Solutions to Violence and our guest today, Francesco da Vinci, understand the hypocrisy in the government's position as evidenced by the fact that da Vinci in 1967 was willing to go to jail rather than to serve in a military that was waging an immoral war. Today, da Vinci explains why he is still a pacifist and a political activist. Folks, you're listening to Solutions of Balance, a program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. The views expressed here today are those of our guests and not necessarily the views of the host or that of WFMP Radio. Our guest today is Francesco da Vinci. Francesco da Vinci is a photographer, writer, and cosmologist. He is the author of I Refuse to Kill, My Path to Nonviolent Action in the 1960s. Francesco's photo images make him an internationally recognized artist. From subways to respected art galleries, his work has been the topic of conversation over the years. His celebrity fashion and dance photography joins the many canons of respected visual arts and includes intimate poses of famous names such as Sarah Jessica Parker, the Dalai Lama, as well as dance icon Mikhail Baryshnikov and Julie Kent. He started his career in Los Angeles, where he was among the top photographers in the city, working with a list of celebrities. His background also includes motion pictures and television photography, as well as supplying images for more than 40 major publications, including Time, Newsweek, The New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, Dance Magazine, The Los Angeles Times, The Washington Post, and Life Magazine. Da Vinci is a peace activist, journalist, public speaker, professor of sociology, and author of the book, I Will Not Kill. Francesco uses his platform in the media to promote causes that are close to his heart. Black Lives Matter, gun control, the abolition of the draft, UNICEF, the abolition of capital punishment, and support for conscientious objectors and nonviolent activists, past and present. There's much more to know about Francesco Da Vinci as we once again have the pleasure of continuing our conversation with De Vinci. Welcome back to Solutions to Violence, Francesco. Thank you, thank you. Good to be here. Well, welcome back to
1: Solutions to Violence, Francesco. It's good to have you. Francesco, you joined us in January 2022, and we want to welcome you back from your sabbatical with us. This is your third visit, actually, with our listeners, and we are excited to know about your year away. What have you been doing on your world of actions for peace? Well, one of my
2: heroes is Congressman John Lewis. And as he would say, I'm trying to make good trouble.
1: <laughs> I'm in
2: war with war as usual. And you know, one one example, you know, of course, is the Ukraine Russian conflict. And I'm calling for a negotiated end to that instead of true military means. And I'm warning, too, of the uh, possible the threat of nuclear war if we escalate that conflict. And I'm always paying tribute to brave anti-war activists and conscientious objectors around the world.
1: Yeah, we appreciate your work. You published your book, I Refused to Kill in November, 2021. For our listeners this time now, who were not available in in January 22, we want to encourage them to go to forwardradio.org and archives to hear more about you and your work. You tell your story about deciding to be a CO. For those who don't know, that's a conscientious objector. That was during the Vietnam War that was in the 60s and 70s. You were meeting intentionally and accidentally amazing numbers of activists and persons of note. Many of us will recognize as the movers and shakers, both in the support and against the war. Now, for those who don't know, again, would you share with us uh, why you wrote I Refuse to Kill and what do you explore in it?
2: Yes, I was a conscientious objector. I applied in 1968. The Vietnam War was raging and and, you know, I went through so much unnecessary pain just for my stand. And I I didn't know much about conscientious objection like most of the public. And then I learned, you know, that this is based on, uh, you know, conscience. Uh, what a CO is, is actually somebody because of their conscience and their ethical beliefs, they refuse to kill. So I wanted to share my story, the ordeal I went through. And, you know, try to muster up support and respect for the conscientious objectors who throughout history, they've been stigmatized, they've been tortured and even killed. So, you know, this is, there's a widespread myth that COs are draft dodgers and the opposite is true. These are brave individuals who stood up to the draft. They could have gone to Canada. During the Vietnam conflict, they could have faked their way out of the draft, bone spurs, et cetera. And instead, they faced it straight on. And if they weren't recognized by their local draft board, they willingly went to prison. So these are not draft dodgers at all. So I wanted to tell the public what a conscientious objector is and then honor them and set the record straight.
1: Right. Thank you for that. Now, since the time of Vietnam era, you remain very much a peace activist. In what ways would you say you continue to to promote peace and, and nonviolence?
2: Well, I'm fortunate because as a uh, photojournalist, I have a platform inherently, and I try to use that to promote nonviolent causes. So for example, I've called for the creation of a Secretary of Peace. And, you know, there's That's been an old idea that's been kicked around for a while, Department of Peace, Secretary of Peace. But clearly, in the president's cabinet, we need more lobbying for nonviolent alternatives to all these needless wars that we have, and of course, needless invasions. And there are certainly strong parallels to our invasion in Vietnam and Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So that's one of the things I'm calling for, for the president to have more of an ear to nonviolent alternatives. And I'm supporting, like you mentioned earlier, you know, the abolishment of capital punishment. Let's end the draft once and for all. You know, it's totally undemocratic. There's a movement in Congress now to bring it back and expand it to women. You know, let's get rid of that. It's not democratic. And, um, It's a tool to foster these uh, needless wars. So those are some of the things I'm championing now, and I'm trying to call for new priorities in America. You know, we need to make this country more humanistic and more nonviolent. We have far too much violence in the country. We have to recognize that. That's the way we can deal with it if we face our problems. Let's address the violence and then move from
0: things like a war economy to a peace economy. So, Francesca, you talked about maybe the draft coming back. That's a controversial idea, even among liberals. Because there are some liberals who are saying, well, if we bring the draft back and there is a war that U.S. military is engaged in a war, then there's going to be a lot of demonstrations because people do not want to be drafted and have to go off to war. So what's your response to that idea?
2: Excellent question, because it came up in the 60s when I formed a peace group and when I faced the draft myself. And there were many people in my peace group who said, you know, This draft is politicizing people that normally wouldn't be politicized because it's coming home to America and we don't want to send our children out there to fight and risk killing and being killed. So I think it's an excellent question, but I've always been against using the draft as a tool to politicize people because it's that Gandhi's principle of means and ends and making them consistent Uh, because you know we've got to face the fact that when you have a draft, that means We are killing people that normally would not enlist normally. And as you know, in Vietnam, there was tremendous dissent. So many of those draftees did did not believe in the war at all and what a you know horrible tragedy you know these are people who expressed from the beginning their abhorrence for the war but they felt they had no alternative and this is particularly true of the minorities you know they were went to the front lines in disproportionate numbers and they were killed in disproportionate numbers so that's why
0: i'm against using the draft as a tool to politicize people. You have explained uh, on our show previously, solutions to violence previously, since the Vietnam War, the Pentagon and the industrial military complex has increased their power and influence. Congress has annually increased the U.S. military budget. The 2022 military budget now approaches $1 trillion. You have mentioned a San Diego, California organization called Nonviolent Action. So Nonviolent Action employs a concept you called microcosm action. Tell us about San Diego's Nonviolent Action Organization. How do they show the power of nonviolence? In what ways do nonviolent action stand up to powerful systems in order to create nonviolent resolutions? Thanks for asking about
2: that because I founded that group, Nonviolent Action, in 1970 and I was working with the farm workers in Caesar Chavez at the time, and Caesar encouraged me to go ahead when I told him I wanted to form a peace group. And so he said, just do it, and that's what I did. It started with four people, and it grew to over 250 people coming from all over the country and meeting weekly. And what we wanted to do is stand for nonviolence as a means of social change. Now consider that we formed this group in San Diego, which was about 40% Navy related. So it it was rough, definitely. And as you know, in the beginning of the Vietnam War, uh, the tendency of people is just to blindly get behind the president and whatever conflict he's uh, leading us into. And that's what happened. People pretty much without question were on board for that war. I think the Senate vote for the Gulf of Tonkin was something like 88 to 2. Only two people, senators, dissenting. So it was a rough time. But, you know, what what we advocated was we had three main projects. The first one started with support of the farm workers. Caesar was organizing them. They had the migrant workers had practically no rights at all and no organization. And he filled that need. And then our second project was a campaign against the draft. And we would leaflet the draftees in San Diego to provide them with counseling. If I can give you a poignant example of the cost of the draft, the first day we went out to leaflet the draftees, and that was at the Greyhound bus station in downtown San Diego, where they shipped them to L.A. and then to Vietnam, we were leafleting. And one of the new volunteers pulled me aside and she said, I want you to know why this is so important to me. And she said, I'm a 22-year-old widow. I lost my husband to Vietnam, and he was totally against the war. And this is hard for me to still even talk about it today. But one week before he was to come home, she told me, he was killed. And she said she received a telegram, you know, and she said it was, they said that he was killed in action as if it would make her feel better. So this is the cost of the draft. You know, it's involuntary servitude. And this is why I call for an end to the draft on a permanent basis. And nonviolent action then went to a large campaign with the USS Constellation Attack Aircraft Carrier which was waging, helping to wage war with other, uh, other carriers in Vietnam. We were spying on Vietnam in the beginning. That should be recognized. It wasn't like uh, we were just attacked. We were spying on Vietnam. So these were the issues that came up, and we were telling people that even if you can't join our campaigns or do something big, it doesn't matter. Microcosm actions, when I said that, what I was referring to is that we can all do something. We can all do something to contribute to the greater good nonviolently. We can show acts of kindness. You know, Anything like that, it all adds up. There's a ripple effect that Bobby Kennedy often spoke to. So that's the idea of microcosm actions. Let's not get cynical and give up and look at and say, there's so many problems out there. What can one person do to make a difference? Well, we can all make a difference, and I want to encourage your listeners
0: to get on board with that, and let's do what we can in our own little world. Give us an example of a a microcosm action that you have participated in sometimes in the past.
2: You know, you see somebody in distress. I mean, it can be at the real basic level of uh, helping somebody struggling to get in a door, you know, or somebody elderly crossing the street or, you know, all these things add up. I remember my mom, on a personal example, sometimes we'd go into a grocery store and I would watch her brighten the face of the cashier. You know, she always had this gregarious nature about her. And, you know, when she knew that people were alone and didn't have any family and they were far away, she would write to them on a regular basis. And, you know, the expression of love. Uh, So many of us are, you know, holding back our love. What are we waiting for? And, you know, you certainly don't want to wait till somebody passes to show your uh, love and tell them you love them. You know, So the expression of love, all those are examples of microcosm actions. So, but Nonviolent Action is an organization,
0: correct? It is. Okay, so is there an email address? Is there a, a website?
2: No, it's really through me now, and I uh, detail it in the book. It's called I Refuse to Kill. And if I could, is it all right if I mention the website for the book? Sure. All right, it's called, it's simple, it's IRefusetokill.com. And I have my email. is attached to that. And I'll be glad to answer anybody's questions and make suggestions, too, if you want to get involved in your community or on a bigger scale for nonviolent causes.
1: You know, in terms of those smiles, you're talking about that, you know, a person really has to understand that they actually feel better, too. You know, if you give somebody a smile, you feel feel better. better. When you give, you get. Yes, yes. Okay, you say COs need to be given their due in history books and, and given credit for the courage and the challenges and real, at times, extreme danger that they were willing to give their lives for in, in the line of fire. So why do you think giving more attention to COs would be important for Americans to know or realize that difference between or that it would make in the scheme of things? What do you think that would? achieve.
2: Well, first of all, we have to understand the tremendous sacrifice and bravery of these, these individuals who declare themselves conscientious objectors. There's a, a running joke, you know, nobody knows what a conscientious objector is, but everybody hates them, you know, and, and it is true. If you go around asking people what it is, nobody, practically nobody knows. And yet, from the time of George Washington to the president, they've been part of our history in an important part because, you know, war and peace, what could be a bigger issue? And the COs have stood up to every war and have said no to it. So if we look back at the history of these COs, it's a look back in American history. And COs have been stigmatized, and and I'm talking about harshly. They've been even tortured, and they've even been killed. So sometimes when they put COs in prison, and often they sent them to the worst prisons possible, like Alcatraz and Leavenworth, they would sometimes shackle them to the bars so that their toes barely touched the ground. And in some cases, and I know um, this is true and documented, they hosed down certain COs until they caught pneumonia and died. So, And then if you go way back, even Roman times, there were Roman soldiers who just laid down their sword and said, thou shalt not kill because of their ethical beliefs. And they were executed. And during Hitler's time, Jehovah's Witnesses were executed and the list goes on. But these brave individuals, they face the draft. If you're talking about American COs now in my generation uh, refusing the Vietnam War, that's at the risk of prison. You know, if you have a student deferment, you can ride that out. But when you apply as a conscientious objector, it's not the easy way out. It's not avoiding the draft. You are, in effect, tearing up your student deferment and risking prison. In my case, I faced a five year prison term. Just for what? For refusing to kill. This is crazy. This is crazy. So, you know, we need to recognize these people, pay tribute to them, honor them. And, you know, they did us all a service. You asked about their importance. They questioned war. This is so important. We go to war way too easily, in my view. And Look at the cost. Right now, you're talking about for the Ukraine-Russian situation, you're talking about maybe 100,000 Ukrainians, men, women, and children have been slaughtered for this, and Russia, the same thing, they've lost 100,000. And you've got to salute the brave anti-war people within both countries. And the conscientious objectors, I mean, look at the repression they face. It's incredible. In Russia, if you even call the war an invasion, you can face 15 years in prison. So conscientious objectors have made a real difference. And it's high time we honor them and understand what they have done uh, to better everybody's life, not just in America, but CEOs are conscious of improving the whole planet.
1: I can see that. I can see where some people would say, well, if we do that, then there's going to be a whole lot more COs And, and what do we do with that?
2: That would be more than welcome for the peace uh, in the world. Uh, So in other words, we need more peacemakers, but I can understand the people that are waging these wars being concerned. And also, you know, we want to keep a lid on people questioning the war. And I'm not talking about we, but I'm saying the media and the government, you know, they don't like the idea of the questioning of each war because a lot of times there are very uh, suspect reasons Reasons why we get into these conflicts. And on ourselves, making a parallel between Vietnam and, and uh, Russia invading Ukraine, there are a lot of strong parallels there. And what we did was clearly an invasion, but we don't like to call it that. But COs speak truth to power. And of course, that's a big concern for people that are waging that war. If I can bring up one important thing that maybe we'll get to a little later too, but The idea of a military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us against, that's a self-perpetuating war machine. And that's another reason why we want to, you know, not have a totally volunteer army. We want to have the draft and we want to keep the lid on what conscientious objectors stand for. The question, you know, is that robbing our resources, this military industrial complex? It's for the benefit of the few at the expense of we the people.
0: So, Francesco, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, I was an undergrad at Western Kentucky University. Even though Western was a rural land-grant university, there were large anti-war student demonstrations in those days. By 1970, the Vietnam War had become a disaster. Even students who grew up on dairy farms were trying to figure out how to avoid the military draft. Nobody was interested in vacationing in the Mekong Delta. Because the Vietnam War had become such a disaster, my friends and I thought it would be at least a half century before the U.S. government would once again send its troops off the war. We were wrong. What are the forces that keeps the U.S. military involved in seemingly endless war? Even though, by and large, dating back to World War II, the U.S. military record has been rather dismal. We are slow learners, that's for sure.
2: I mean, we could have learned a great lesson from Vietnam that obviously we didn't. Vietnam, you know, went 10 years from the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964 and then ending in 74 and 75 with negotiations going on. So what happened? We went to Afghanistan for double that. And it was always this light at the end of the tunnel rationale. So, you know, we get into these things and you've got to ask yourself, we should all ask ourselves, and these are the things I like about conscientious objectors. They get people thinking, they get people asking the right questions. Who is benefiting from these wars? The As we were talking uh, just a little earlier about the military-industrial complex. Eisenhower warned us about this and said the corporations and the military, he could see them coming together for the benefit of the few and then robbing us from human needs. If I can just tell you, uh, read uh, the quote from Eisenhower that I've always kept you in the forefront of my mind because it's so poignant about war. He said, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. And he added, we're spending the sweat of our laborers, the genius of our scientists, and the hopes of our children. So, you know, when you have a budget like this with a trillion dollars going to the military, that's more than a dry intellectual accounting of funds. That's a moral statement. And we need to reassess our priorities and put people first.
1: Francesco, you may have heard of Colonel Larry Wilkerson. He was an aide to General Colin Powell when Powell made his justification to the U.N. for the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Wilkerson has since radically changed his position in terms of supporting military intervention and, and by the U.S., especially when invading other nations. His point is that invariably invading a nation is a losing military move. Wilkerson cites the Vietnam War as an example of a lost cause. He proposes that the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan is, is simply a repeat to the similar result in Vietnam. So the repeat is the abandonment of the people who supported the U.S. in both Vietnam and Afghanistan. Wilkerson further explains that because nationhood is, is so important to patriots of those nations, in most cases, patriots are most likely to, to defeat an invading army. Wilkerson believes that when an army invades another country, that invasion is a losing venture from the start to the end. What would you say to Wilkerson?
2: I would say Wilkerson, I completely agree with you. It's a doomed endeavor to invade other countries. Yeah, and it's both immoral and impractical. You know, you've got the will of the people behind that native country, like in Vietnam. We did not understand Vietnam. And I don't think Putin really ever understood Ukraine on a parallel. So those are the two invasions that come to mind right away. And, you know, look at the dissent that happened, you know, when our own military recognized the futility of that war. What a tragedy. By 1970, the bulk of the military had turned and realized how hopeless this was and that Nixon was only buying time to get out of Vietnam. And we were in there for one main reason. Johnson and Nixon, in there for pride. So, you know, what a horrible thing for our troops. And as you know, the trauma, such a huge, huge problem, and the suicide rate, very high for the vets, and drug use, et cetera. And, you know, it got to the point, and I, I, this is difficult for me to even talk about, but it's something we've got to face. You got to the point where our own troops were killing their officers because gung-ho officers were still sending them into hopeless battles. So, you know, this is what you get when you do immoral and practical things and invade countries. And Putin, of course, has invaded
0: Ukraine. So I agree completely with Wilkerson on that. As I have previously pointed out here, Francesco, since World War II, wars waged by the U.S. military has been less than successful. Yet the U.S. military is a cherished institution. Criticizing the military or its involvement in war is a dangerous proposition. Many believe, at great sacrifice, the military keeps us free. Does the military keep us free? Why has the military acquired such a place of reverence here in this country? Well, I
2: think one reason is our notion of security. You know, it's become twisted in the sense that we identify it with having just strong military and the build up of, of the weapons the arms race having more nuclear weapons and other superpowers you know this is not real security this is less security and you know one one thing i i put in my book was that i'm a i'm a space nerd i admit it and I love space and exploration. And when we went to the moon, you know, I looked at that as kind of a symbolic warning for Earth. And, you know, this is what Earth could be with nuclear war. And I think we, we really put to the back of our mind the dangers of these wars that we glorify. You know, the idea of disarmament uh, is seen as threatening, more threatening than the buildup of these nuclear weapons. We've got to reevaluate our notion of security. That's one of the reasons that the military is associated with keeping us free and the arms race is accepted. But when you talk about a budget of a trillion dollars, and now we're thinking of taking you know our weapons into space and then starting, you know, another arms race up there, it's crazy because again, we're neglecting the human needs. So we've got to question the military and question our government on the way it's spending our resources. Those resources are limited. And, you know, one thing that's very disturbing, the idea that we can't even question our military or our government. You know, you're seen as possibly unpatriotic or you have communist leanings. This is not the case at all. You know, it's healthy in a democracy to question. If we lose our ability to question, uh, we've arrived in 1984, so uh, big brother. So the idea, our country was founded on diversity, on questioning, on freedom of speech. We need to respect those ideals and not come down so harsh on people that simply question a reevaluation of our military and our priorities and address human needs
0: more. So, Francesco, you mentioned the Russian-Ukrainian war. So that war is raging, and the mainland news media brings it into our living rooms almost every night. The Russian-Ukrainian war is covered by the mainland news from an American exceptionalism perspective as evidenced by the fact that none of the networks have bothered to mention the demands made by Vladimir Putin since the Russian military first invaded Ukraine. Mainline news has once again framed the conflict as a Minichinian contest. The U.S. and its allies are totally right, and its enemy is totally wrong. However, Chris Hedges, on his program Law and Order, March 21, 2022, explains that for decades the U.S. has had Russia surrounded by military installations and nuclear weapons. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, has placed missiles in Poland within 100 miles of the Russian border. Hedges also explains that instead of dismantling NATO after the collapse of the Soviet Union, NATO, a military coalition, was expanded. For these reasons, historians like Peter Kustik, Chris Hedges, And the international journalist Anatoly 11 believed the demands requested by Putin were quite reasonable. So Putin has asked the U.S. to pull back some of its military installations, confine its nuclear weapons to U.S. border. He has also asked that NATO refuse to admit Ukraine to its alliance. Biden and the NATO leadership refused to honor any of Putin's requests. Like most wars, the causes of Russian-Ukrainian conflict are complex, with both sides expressing legitimate complaints. So, Francesco da Vinci, does the U.S. and its NATO allies bear some responsibility for the causes that led to the Ukrainian-Russian war? What, what should they have done differently? Well, yes, the U.S. and NATO bear some responsibility for the causes
2: that led to the war, for sure. As early as 2008, NATO's summit in Bucharest, Romania, The Russians clearly advocated that their viewpoint that it's going to be a threat for Ukraine to be part of the European Union and for NATO right on their border. And there were many political analysts that felt like if the Ukraine had the position that pressing hard to make Ukraine pro-America and be part of NATO and the European expansion, there would have been a problem. You know, I think there are definitely legitimate responsibility uh, issues there. And again, that points out about the need to be open-minded and listen to both sides. It's understandable, of course, Putin has invaded Ukraine. He's been vilified, but we can't let that completely wipe out any consideration of Putin's concerns. And, you know, it'd be hypocritical too. There have been many times where the few's been on the other foot. The Cuban Missile Crisis is a good historic example. I mean, that was over the missiles that were being put in right offshore of America, off of Florida, you know, and, and we complained uh, this is dangerous and we weren't going to permit it, that uh, this is uh, war-provoking. And sure enough, uh, what happened was with that is in secret? we had our missiles right off of uh, Russia in Turkey. And so we, our deal was to end that conflict was that, okay, Russia said we'll back down, but we said, as long as you keep it secret about our missiles in Turkey, we'll take them out in secret because we didn't want We didn't want the bad publicity. We didn't want to admit that we were doing the same thing. We were complaining about with Cuba. So, and uh, meddling with elections. There's another example, you know, we were so upset that Russia meddled with our election, rightly so, but we've been meddling with uh, the elections of countries around the world for decades, you know, so, you know, let's look ourselves in the mirror. And again, you know, I want to stress to your listeners, this does not mean you're unpatriotic to question your own country you know, I'm proud of America. We have incredible freedoms here. You look at the rest of the world and how repressive it is. We have a heck of a lot to be grateful for. So for me to just bring up issues and other people to question things, it's it's a healthy exercise in democracy. So yes, I do feel we definitely uh, have responsibility, our country, for not listening more and not being more tactful about the Ukraine-Russian situation, and pressing ahead with what we want, European Union and NATO, and uh, no concessions, and then gradually uh, softening. And, you know, when this if this war escalates, also it's come up before the danger of the threat of nuclear war. That's something to take very seriously.
1: Yeah. Francesco, you make the point in the podcast BookSpeak uh, Network that the general mood in the 1960s and 70s was then a lot more united than today. How would you describe the mood today toward peace activism and what can be done to inspire the movement?
2: Well, one of the things I was referring to is that the younger generation didn't have the split in the 60s that they have now. Right now, the, wow. this generation is split right up the middle, very divisive, very extreme. and my generation in the 60s those of us that were in the peace movement and civil rights movement were pretty unified within that context of those things and also there was a big generation gap so our split was really a generational one but not as much within the movements themselves although there were uh, there was a lot of diversity for sure but i think uh i see today's generation is very promising generation uh the activism is coming back and it's coming back strong. I mean, you look at Black Lives Matter, uh, look at March for our lives about sensible gun laws, it's very promising. So, you know, one of the things that this generation is standing for that I love is they're insisting on racial justice and peace through nonviolent activism, you know? So that's a beautiful thing to see. So I'm optimistic and I make a point of specifically reaching out to today's generation because sometimes it's easy to get overwhelmed by it with COVID and the bad economy and the divisiveness. You know, that's a lot that's a big burden. But and yet in the face of all that, they're still forging ahead. And I salute that.
1: Yeah, and looking at your career now, uh, in addition to producing movies and, and composing songs and, and authoring books, you are also a photographer. Your photos, images make you an intentionally uh, recognized audi- uh, artist from subways to respected art galleries. Your work has been displayed, featured and the topic of conversation over decades. Describe for us the kinds of photos you like to produce and what makes those photos important to you and to people.
2: Well, you mentioned all the different kinds of things I do. And that's one of the reasons I'm so confused. No, just kidding. Anyhow, I, it is a lot, of, I wear a lot of different hats. <laughs> And uh, with the photography, it's really a creative outlet for me, you know, uh, rather than just being centered on politics and the need for social change. But the photography gives me a lot of self-satisfaction. I love photographing people. Uh, And I've had that early on uh, love of people. I think part of it's from my dad, who was a prominent psychiatrist. He loved people. And, uh, you know, I love the learning something from everybody. And especially when I had the privilege of photographing uh, famous people that were dedicated to excellence in their chosen field, I couldn't help but uh, be inspired. And many of them sometimes would uh, give me an inspirational quote or something like that. Uh, I remember Muhammad Ali, I've worked with him three times, and he said, you know, champs aren't made in gyms, they're made from something within, things like that. And Ray Bradbury, the sci-fi writer, he said, uh, Jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. And Betty Davis said, uh, "No guts, no glory." You know the inspirational things like that. So I've learned from all of them, and um, I would say that um, you know, producing the photographs. You know, there there's all different styles that you can do when you're a photographer. And for me, what I related to most was humanizing my famous subjects. You know, there were a lot of different styles. Uh, some people put them in environmental situations and all that but i wanted to go right to get beyond the public persona and come in tight on the face and emphasize the windows of the soul i i would call those those pictures eye shots and you know as elvis would once said the uh, image is one thing and the human being is another and that's what i tried to show in my my photographs humanize my subject
1: yeah well your contact with the celebrity and, and fashion and dance photography is, is is said to join the expanse of respected visual art and includes intimate poses of famous names like sarah jessica parker the dalai lama as well as uh dance icons like uh, mikhail barashnikov most people will know who the dalai lama is but but Mikhail Baryshnikov, not so much, who is a, uh, he's he's a, a Soviet Latvian-born Russian-American dancer, choreographer, and actor. How do you feel about being in the presence of the famous and historic, like Dalai Lama and, and Mikhail Baryshnikov?
2: Well, in the very beginning of my celebrity portrait career, I was just in awe and sometimes it would be like I have laryngitis. I, could, I couldn't I could muster anything intelligent to say. I would just say hi, you know, and a loss of words in their presence. But then later um, I began to see more of the human side of them and I felt more comfortable and I felt inspired and humbled. Um, one thing I saw in common is that most of them, almost all of them had a dedication to excellence. And uh, that that was inspiring for me. And the Dalai Lama, I remember him saying that, don't look to big organizations like the United Nations, or don't look to America for the progress in the world, not just that. Uh, Look inward to yourself, start with that. And that mirrored uh, what uh, Gandhi said about, I won't wait uh, to convert the whole society to my point of view, but I'll straight away make it beginning with myself. So the Dalai Lama, key things like that. Mikhail Rishnikov, of course, you know, his movement is like poetry in motion, you know. This is an incredible, incredible, one of the greatest dancers of all time. So it was, I I learned uh, to make a commitment uh, to excellence to be my best, that's what I try to do.
1: So looking at your photos, they have been published in uh, at least 28 different publications in the U.S. and, and abroad. So. So you've been in contact and uh, negotiation and and been influenced by many, many different characters. Over the years, businesses, folks involved in the media, politicians even, and and a wide variety of of characters abound in your collection. And they become friends and associates. What is it about your sensibility that helps you engage with such a variety of personalities and networks and systems? if you photograph people, you got to love people. It doesn't work otherwise. You know, you should be photographing
2: lamps if you don't like people or whatever. But, uh, I, you know, I just, I have, you got to follow, you have to have the intuition for it, you know, and I, I trust my instincts. So I would follow those instincts and, um, you know, I would draw out the best in people. Some people use the camera, you know, as a weapon. And uh, they'll be great for an art gallery or controversial or something like that. And other people make uh, through retouching, they'll make their subject so uh, overdone that it's robotic. And I always went for the middle. So uh, I tried to bring out the true essence of that individual. And even I never care, you know, some some photographers that were celebrity portrait photographers, my colleagues, they wouldn't touch uh, a session with somebody they disagreed with politically but I was the opposite. I didn't care what their politics was, what their religion was, anything. So, you know, I always respected that. Uh, when I went to the White House for a shoot, it was uh, for the Bush family. I had, you know, I was on one side of the galaxy politically from their their point of view, but I had a great time and Barbara Bush was so charming and, and nice. Uh, you know, it's again, it's bringing things to the human level and if I can digress for a moment about the divisiveness today we face, we need to listen to each other and respect each other more. This is what America is truly about. Let's look at the Statue of Liberty again, you know, and uh, accept not only accept the diversity here, but celebrate it. Come on, folks, let's listen to each other and get back together.
1: That's a wonderful thought, and we've we've got we've had some. Uh... Some great interviews, I think, with uh, recently and uh, even in the past, with people who are talking about that very thing: how we got together, how we listen to each other, yeah. and talk. You know, even though we disagree, we can talk. We have things in common. Well, how was your how was your commitment to peace uh, activism been a part of your life as as uh, as you engaged in all these circles of influence? What, what your strategy in terms of convincing these this, these personalities at peace and, and nonviolence resolution is a, is, is a righteous path.
2: Yeah, well, I, I really don't look to convert. You know, I'm, I'm looking to exchange ideas respectfully, as we were just talking about. And I also want to show history in a different light. You know, I think we've really neglected uh, the legacy of nonviolence in America and all the peacemakers, conscientious objectors, etc., cetera, that are an important part of our history. You know, we still haven't really recognized them. Look at the suffragettes, for example. I mean, they go way back. You know, we didn't get the, women didn't get the power to vote until 1920. Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But there were so many women before then that were paying the price, they were arrested, they were ridiculed, et cetera. You know, that's just a small example. So, you know, these nonviolent activists, this is part of our history. We need to rewrite our American history. And, you know, that's, I guess, as a conscientious objector, I'm particularly sensitive to that because uh, we, we've been, you know, like I mentioned, it's stigmatized, tortured, and killed. So it's time now that to honor conscientious objectors for what they're, for they're, ref, they're taking a stand on refusing to kill and promoting peace in, in America and in the world.
1: Francesco, you were in the process of, of putting together a film based on your book, I Refuse to Kill. Tell us about your plans for the future of the film and, and how it came about, how's it going, uh, when we might expect to see it released.
2: Yeah, well, I thank you for asking about that. I have a passion for film uh, as well as writing and peace politics. So the documentary uh, is gonna be based on the book, I Refuse to Kill and uh, we want to honor you know the peacemakers throughout our history and we're going to tell my personal story and it's going to be a fun trip through the whole 60s you know uh, there are a lot of people that have a passion for the 60s often i hear an internal come in and say i wish i was born in the 60s well this is the next best thing you can relive it vicariously Uh, we go from 1960 to 1971 you know, it was one of the most significant historical periods in American history. A lot of people consider it America's second revolution. So a bonus uh, with the story is I have a tremendous film uh, photo library of pictures that I took all the way through that. I was lucky to meet so many iconic individuals like Congressman Lewis or Muhammad Ali. I even photographed Rosa Parks, uh, Senator Eugene McCarthy, Bobby Kennedy. All those people were in the book. So, and now we're going to put them in the film, and we want to uh, tell this generation especially, you know, what it was like in the 60s. It was such a progressive time, uh, and that has been distorted or omitted uh, from today's accounts. And now we're going to pay tribute, and we're going to bring today's generation up to date about one of the most altruistic uh, generations in American history. Same title.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so many other issues left to, to discuss, but, but undoubtedly now positive things that happened in the world, peace action in, in 2022, we made some perhaps tentative to uh, efforts to pass over good developments, not realizing they have happened or considered even as important. Would you give us a sense of some events you consider positive and encouraging in the world in the last year?
2: Well, sure. As I mentioned, I I see today's generation as a promising generation. Uh, uh, The activism is on the increase. Uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, March for Our Lives, uh, movements like this, and questioning war, you know, this is one of the great promising signs of the future. Uh, The young people are the future. And, you know, We've talked about listening to each other, especially, you know, between generations too. Uh, you know, let's not, uh, and ageism is a problem, but it's just as racism as a problem. So with the generations, I would encourage that, that dialogue too. And let's not write off each other just because of are different generation. Same with uh, religion, you know, whether it's religion or non-religion, you know, respect everybody's beliefs. And I guess, you know, the dissent is healthy. I want to leave with that uh, message, you know, that this is a good thing when it's done respectfully and nonviolently. This is a good thing. We want to promote kindness in ourselves and in the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, your interests are so wide. You're a member uh, or a board member of the uh, organizations. Uh, some of them are astro- astrobiology. Uh, you're on the board of that, I believe, and, and uh, yeah. Cosmology Board, Media and Arts Board, Robotics, Lifeboat yeah. Foundation, Lifeboat Foundation. I'd like to know more about that organization. What is Lifeboat Foundation, and, and, and why does it interest you?
2: I'm proud of that because I was made an honorary member dealing from my, uh, my writings about cosmology and future AI. Future AI is going to be sentient. It's going to have thought and feeling. So there are blessings to that and there are dangers to that. So the organization Lifeboat, you know, their focus is to safeguard humanity. An example of a danger would be a robot revolution where humans go extinct. So they're prepping this, you know, And for example, we want to program AI with empathy, right? And that's, I've always been, uh, have a strong interest in space and in uh, a future AI, but, uh, you know, we have to have, uh, with, there have to be boundaries and safeguards. So we're going to the, the planets, we're gonna colonize Mars, we're going back to the moon, and there's a certain irony there, you know, where we're going out to explore the wider picture of space, the big picture, and yet we still haven't learned to live on Earth. So let's do both at the same time. I love space exploration, but let's put a little more time and energy uh, into mitigating these unnecessary wars and being kind to one another.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Francesco, go go ahead.
2: I was just going to say let's wage peace.
1: Well, we are about out of time, unfortunately. Uh, Any last thoughts for our radio listeners, our audience?
2: Yeah, I do. I, I, I want to say that uh, I'm proud of today's generation. I I want to spur you on, uh, keep up the good work. And, you know, I want to remind us, it's, uh, it's easy, you know, to take things for granted. I mean, here we are in a great country, America, we have lots of problems. You know, Winston Churchill would always say, you know, democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for all the others meaning uh, this is the best game in town uh, and our freedoms, you know, look how repressive uh, and dangerous it is in other countries. And yet we have so much to be grateful for. So I'm, I'm even though I bring up these issues, you know, in question, uh, I still love the country and uh, trying to uh, encourage that we better it and we better the planet, not just in our own country, but a dual citizenship. know let's be citizens of america but remind ourselves we're citizens of the whole planet which speaks to the environmental concerns too so let's be the change as gandhi always said and and let's define ourselves in action not just talk about these things but let's take the action but i would say emphasize compassionate action okay and we speak our truths and let's respect each other's truths. You know, we can uh, reconcile that, coexist, wage peace. And, you know, the idea of waging peace and and living by love, those were great ideas in the 60s. And they're great ideas today. So let's put them more into practice. That's what I'd like to leave you with. Thank you for having me today.
1: Thank you so much for being with us. We feel uh, very fortunate. And honored to have you. So maybe come back again sometime.
2: Thank you, Bye-bye. thank you. You guys are the best. And I just want to say quickly, what a great service you provide.
1: What a
0: great, great, inspiring service. Thank you, thank sir. You. So folks, we are out of time. We want to say uh, thank you to Francesco da Vinci and for taking his time to be with us today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Francesco da Vinci, you can reach us with the following email address solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. The Solutions of Balance program that features Francesco da Vinci will air again January 31st and February 1st. To listen live stream, visit us at forwardvideo.org and click on Listen Live Now. You can listen via our archives if you visit our website and scroll down to Program Archives and then scroll down to the Solutions of Balance program that features Francesco da Vinci. Solutions of Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. For Solutions of Violence and WFMP Radio, I'm Jim Johnson. Jamie McMillan is our co-host, and Kellen Brooks-Johnson is our technical engineer. Thanks for listening. Appreciate your support.